Hello everybody, I'm Matt Mikuzzi and you are listening to the Jazzy's podcast. Be wise, be smart, behave my heart. Don't upset your cart when she's so close. Be soft, be sweet. But be discreet, don't go off your beat. She's so close for comfort. Hello everybody, Jazz is online editor Matt Mikucci here, welcoming you to a new episode of our podcast series of conversations with some of the most amazing artists on the jazz and creative music scene today, a series that we simply like to call The Jazz Is Podcast, and it's brought to you in conjunction with Jazz Is Vinyl Club, a series of vinyl compilations carefully curated by the Jazz Is editors, and that is an absolute must for lovers of jazz and vinyl alike. Today's guest is acclaimed guitarist and vocalist John Pizzarelli, who celebrated the 40th anniversary of his recording debut with a new album, Stage and Screen, released earlier this year via Palmetto Records. The album features Pizzarelli's trio with bassist Mike Karn and pianist Isaiah J. Thompson, and finds inspiration in classic songs from Broadway musicals and Hollywood films. Aside from speaking about Pizzarelli's latest album, we'll be talking about some highlight moments of his journey in music and stories from his formative years, including his love of Nat King Cole and memories of touring and performing with Frank Sinatra. So fire up on Audiotini and listen to the audio waves as they fly through the air. This is the Jazz Is Podcast. <laughs> Hi, John. Welcome to the Jazz Is Podcast. Nice to be with you. Thanks for having me today. Oh, I'm excited to speak with you, John, especially as you will soon be releasing a new album, Stage and Screen, at the time of the recording uh, of this interview, of course. It might already be out <laughs> once the podcast is out there. But now, this record, it's very exciting. It marks the 40th anniversary of your recording debut. Uh, 40 years of recorded music, and we know during this time technology has changed a lot, but do you feel that the way in which you approach new recording sessions, uh, new projects like these, has kind of changed over time also? Well, I don't think the actual process has changed that much. I think the, the good news is is just that the technology has allowed for things like edits and little fixes to be done quicker uh, and save a lot of time in the process. But uh, it's still, to me, I like the idea of getting a set list together, going to the studio. You still got to set up and you still got to play and those kinds of things are fun. I mean, the whole process of it is still relatively the same for me, but still uh, enjoyable. <laughs> Well, that's good to hear. And, you know, one of the things that I love about this series is that as an icebreaker, you know, of sorts, I like to ask the artists that I speak with to kind of share with us an early memory of theirs that when they think back to it, they realize that's what might have set them off on their musical path. And I, and I understand that you, you know, you, you kind of entered that path from early, from an early age. You come from a musical family. So, but, do you have one particular memory, perhaps from your early childhood, that you could share with us today that when you kind of realized, yes, this is what I'm going to do when I grow up? No, you know, it's interesting. I am obviously been talking about this a lot and trying to figure those kinds of things out. 
I, I don't, uh, nothing from really early childhood, although, I mean, I, I loved singing along to Beatle records and like pretending that, you know, I like to get big pieces of cardboard and make them into guitars and things like that. Uh, I never thought about making a living or at that part of it. Although when I was about 16 for my birthday, there was a, there was a guy who had a studio in the next town in his basement and it was sort of, it was like a, a professional kind of studio, a little four-track reel-to-reel and everything, but he had like a booth and a room and a drum booth. And I remember going there, and I remember really thinking that was really fun. And that, that part of it about the recording process was very enjoyable. But I guess the good news is I never thought I, I never thought of it as a job. I, I guess I uh, sometimes... As I'm trying to think about it, I think the only time I think it's a job is when I have to get on a plane, but not when I'm playing the gigs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, flights can be quite daunting, right? Yeah, the, the, well, the, that's the one thing I think that's changed the most in the in the 40 years. Uh, travel's just been is it, just um, it's more like bus travel in the sky than it was maybe 40 years ago when I started with my dad and we were flying around with Benny Goodman and stuff like that and. Uh, it was just, uh, it's a different scene, but the gigs are really enjoyable. It's very, uh, redeeming and, uh, I get a lot of, uh, satisfaction out of that. Speaking about your early years in, in music then, is it true that, you know, you played the trumpet as a younger man? Yeah, I played the trumpet from fourth grade through, uh, high school and into college. Uh, once I was in college, I finally, I got a teacher. I gave grief to a lot of teachers before then, but the, my, my trumpet teacher in college, his name was Ron Byerly, and he was a, a great teacher, and really, he just was, uh, there was something about the way that he taught the trumpet to me that made me have a whole different respect for the trumpet, so that was about as much as I got out of it. I got more out of it from what the teacher taught me than from the actual instrument, so once I realized it was hard, I gave it up. <laughs> Like what were the things that he would say to you about it? Well, it was all it was about preparation and all the things that I needed to do to be prepared to play the trumpet. Uh, it's a lot like and, and and that a lot of that related to singing. And I'm sort of getting into that in the last ten years or so, realizing that the warm ups and the warm downs are just as important as the actual process of of in this case playing the trumpet. There were those things, and there's just little exercises that I did on the trumpet that I could apply to playing the guitar and help me with passages. Uh, if I had to play something on a record date or something, I could use those little uh, things that he taught me on the trumpet. I could apply them to the guitar. And it was just sort of, I think, the daily work ethic of the trumpet. Realize that I could apply that to the guitar, and uh, that was a big deal. So that that whole process... I started to really look forward to my trumpet lessons uh, because uh, he was so dedicated to it and that dedication rubbed off on me. Uh, that's really interesting. And, and of course, your father was a great uh, guitarist. Uh, but when did you uh, decide to switch to the guitar as your primary instrument? Well, I played guitar. I played banjo first when I was six years old. They gave me a tenor banjo and I, I learned a lot of the tunes when I was a kid. I really enjoyed that. I played with my father's uncles who were banjo players and they taught me. Similar to how they taught him guitar, they taught me banjo. And by the time I was uh, 12, I always say 
and it's really true, is that, you know, on our couch in our house, the couch was uh, on an angle to the, on a 90 degree angle to the stereo, the big hi-fi. And on that couch was always a classical guitar, my father's guitar. So if you wanted to sit down, you had to move the guitar. And so eventually I was like, well, I was holding that guitar and I was like, well, it should be just like the banjo. There's just two more strings. I could learn some chords and do that. And the first song I learned on the guitar was the chords to uh, an Elton John song called Country Comfort. Mm. And I started to play along to the records. And it really was, um, I was like, oh. And so I just started to play the guitar. The process from there went to playing in bands. And then there was a trombone player in the next town who wanted to play the song Spain for his uh, senior recital. And uh, we all got the Chikoria record and learned it. And my father was like, how the hell did you learn that song? And I said, well, we learned it off the record. And so he said, well, here's my record with George Barnes. Learn George's parts on some of these things and we can play together. And so that's how that, that was the really just the little part of how that started between me and him. Not the easiest uh, stuff to learn, I guess, when you're <laughs> kind of starting out, right? Yeah, <laughs> I didn't you, know any you, better. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. Maybe that, that, that worked in your favor in a, in a way, because you didn't know any better, but you just did it and it, and it worked out. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and you know, that was really the idea at that point too, was um, I knew a couple of things. And when I went to gigs with my father, at the end of the gig, he'd say, my son's here, we're going to play a couple of tunes. Oh, and nice. I really realized after that, that the more tunes that I learned, the longer I could be on stage. <laughs> so I you know, started to dedicate <laughs> myself a little more to learning some things. Uh, you know, aside from uh, your your father being a, an influence on uh, on your music, and who were uh, the other guitarists, some of the other, or even other musicians that you looked up to in your formative years? Well, I think the biggest inspiration that drove me to the singing part of it was Nat King Cole. At, at the same time that I was starting to work with my father in 1980, we'd start to play all the gigs together, and I was mainly an accompanist. But um, I started to also work in restaurants and things, uh, singing and playing, and I needed a repertoire. So aside from Michael Franks and Kenny Rankin tunes, I had this discovery of Nat King Cole and th those songs. And that was a really good foundation for what where I was headed. So Nat King Cole was a big deal. And, and I loved all the guitar players I was hanging out with in New Jersey. There was just... When I got into my 20s, I was, you know, there were these guys who were really good at what they did. Even though they were playing rock and roll and things, it really was, they were fun guys to be around. And uh, there was a guy named Ray Longchamp who still plays here in New, in New Jersey and, uh, and around New York. And these were guys I just, there was, the, there was this application of, uh, you know, what they wanted to do with the guitar even though it was a different thing. Like Ray really wanted to play like Larry Carlton and he got a Mesa Boogie amp and he had a 335. And I was like, oh, I had no knowledge of how guitars worked other than you plugged them in. And uh, so uh, I learned a lot from Ray and from the bands that I was in uh, uh, just about that part of it. So uh, these weren't household names, but the idea that they were making a living doing this stuff, and I was starting to do that too. And I was like, oh, okay, this is something. So uh, I think that sort of excited my father too, just the fact that I was going out there and doing it. It seems we stood and talked like this before. We looked at each other in the same way then. 
The track you are hearing is from John Pizzarelli's latest album, Stage and Screen, available now. And if you love jazz and vinyl, be sure to check out Jazz's Vinyl Club, a new series of vinyl compilations carefully curated by the Jazz's editors and featuring some of the most exciting jazz artists from yesterday and today that we cover in the print version of Jazz's, jazz's.com, and these Jazz's podcasts. Go to jazz's.com and click on Join Vinyl Club. And now, back to our conversation with John Pizzarelli. And left before And loved before But who knows where Your new album, Stage and Screen, uh, as the title suggests, is a collection of classic songs from Broadway and Hollywood, but has the influence of uh, theatre and cinema uh, with its atmospheres, its narratives and so on, also kind of influenced the trajectory of your musical development in terms of style, of sound. In other words, has this too been a significant influence on your music? Oh, I definitely think the theatrical or cinematic aspect of making a record and, in a sense, uh, playing gigs, but I'll, I'll put it this way. Uh, you know, I, I spoke to Russ Teitelman, a great record producer once, about, you know, I used to think it was unfair to change vocal performances that I had done live with a big band or with a group or something like that. And he was like, it's like making a movie. you got to edit things together so it all works in your favor, you know, so that it's streamlined and it all works out. And I always found that fascinating. And he thought of that of producing a record like making a movie. I think about the theatrical aspect of the gig uh, uh, that's important, the idea of a, of, a, of a flow to a gig, what the, the, the tempos of the songs, uh, the emotions of the songs, uh, and, and putting those things together. And that was uh, also these things I've, I learned also in my 20s uh, from seeing, I saw Sinatra and Billy Joel and Bruce Springsteen, all within a couple of years' period of time, separately, of course. But the way that they presented the music to me went like, I could do that with a jazz group on a small level. I don't think that my performances are like Bruce Springsteen or anything, but the idea of you want to give them an, an entertainment sort of arc that can be applied, and the music doesn't suffer. There's just an arc that people understand. So I guess... The theatrical and cinematic ideas are there, one in recording and one in performing. So that also comes into play when you're thinking of things like track listing and things like that when you're working on an album, right? It used to, yeah. Now, I, the track listing, unfortunately, doesn't really mean that much anymore, I don't think. Uh, although, mm. I, although we still have uh, hard copies of the records, people buy them all out of order and they buy, or they buy what they want and all that. But it used to be, we used to have a lot of fun you know, just even the, the time between songs, the silence between songs was always a big deal, too, when you were mastering. So uh, some of that has gone by the wayside, but that was it's still uh, a small part of what goes on. How do you feel about that, by the way? Oh, I, I you know, I'm personally, I, I think, I don't know why we're, 
everybody feels like we have to give away our music uh, if you're talking about that. <laughs> but uh, uh, so the idea that everybody puts their music up uh, and it's free is sort of like uh, doesn't make sense to me because uh, everybody's working so hard to put out a product uh, and the budgets have so changed. They're so uh, they're smaller and smaller. Uh, so you really have to be creative. And I think that helps. I mean, it helps creativity. Then you sort of sit and go, okay, well, if I can't have an orchestra, I get my wife and my daughter who are great singers and we'll, we'll provide some sort of backing vocal thing, you know, those kinds of things that I've done over the last couple of years. So those things are all sort of, it's just a part of the process now. You know, you, you got to roll with it and hope for the best. In, in other words, there are negatives and positives to, to even all these this technological innovation. Uh, for example, you know, I mean, uh, aside from uh, performing and recording, you've kind of, you know, over the years worked within several media. You know, you've hosted radio shows. And in recent times, you actually have embraced social media, too, and have a Thursday night weekly live stream show on your Facebook page. So what has your experience been with, with social media? Well, that it's sort of a rebirth. I was off uh, social media for uh, personally uh, for oh, just because it was taking up so much time, and I, I uh, you know, the things that I would, you know, my office could uh, management office could post all the things, or they'd say, "Make me a video, we'll post it." So I didn't have any connection to it for about five years, and when the pandemic hit. Uh, we just realized there was an opportunity there to, there was nothing else to do. I was thinking, how can we get out there? And actually what I did was, is I did a concert. I was back on Facebook. I did this concert for the union, the music union in New York, which uh, it, it streamed the concert to 12 uh, areas where people who were working in hospitals were eating lunch and stuff, and they could have music there and a little entertainment uh, between shifts. And then I realized at that time, well, I could do this on my own on Thursday nights and uh, uh, have a connection out there and make and and also try to make a little money because there was no work. So it worked out great, and it was it really has been a great connection to the people who are listening to the music, and now they're coming back out to the gigs, and I think it's really been rather successful. And, and I also brought that up because I read that, uh, you know, much of the repertoire of stage on, and screen uh, was inspired by uh, these uh, live stream concerts on Facebook. Is that true? Yeah. Well, yeah, I've, you know, certain s songs and arrangements. Uh, what I do is on Monday, Mondays, I would make a post and say, I'm doing a concert on Thursday. Let me know what you want to hear. I would take requests and I still do. So in the midst of playing, say, where or when, all of a sudden I played it one day in that sort of sort of dark uh, bossa nova feel. And I was like, well, and I was like, that's something good. That's going to work. You know, i got to keep that in my pocket. And Time After Time was a song that always came up. And then being online, I saw Zoot Sims play Too Close for Comfort with my father and Benny Goodman. So as I put all these songs together, I realized they had a theme of either stage or screen. It was just something that came out of doing these concerts and uh, playing a lot of these tunes. It, it was just something that came out of uh, out of nothing. It's sort of like the way the Italians cook. You know, they find things in the fields that nobody, you know, dandelion greens and say, that could be a salad. <laughs> so yeah. there you have it. <laughs> I understand what you're talking about. I'm Italian, so <laughs> well, there you go. I know exactly what you're referring to. Um, yeah, but in... in 
paying tribute to great songs of stage and screen from the past, uh, you also, of course, pay tribute to some of the great interpreters of these songs. And two of them you actually mentioned, Nat King Cole and Frank Sinatra. Nat King Cole, amazing vocalist, but also an amazing musician. So uh, Frank Sinatra, Cole, of course, Old Blue Eyes. And actually... While I was kind of looking up stuff about uh, you and, you know, <laughs> just in preparation of this interview, I, I read that, you know, I understand that you actually got to, you know, you were part of a trio that opened for him in Las Vegas in the early 90s. What was that experience like? Because that, that seems like it would be amazing. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, actually, where it came to be is because uh, I know in Wikipedia it's wrong, but I did... I did uh, six concerts in Germany starting on June 1st, 1993, so 30 years ago, this June. And then I did another 12 in the United States. They kept me on. So I was, I actually had charts and I would play with the band. He had a big band and a harp and um, we had strings in the United States, but I didn't have any string arrangements at that point, but just the big band things. Uh, it was fascinating. I mean, it was like... Um, uh, nothing I had ever done up to that point, uh, where you'd go and play for 10,000 people. <laughs> you know, I went from in, wow. in, uh, from, you know, for, for 250 people to 5,000 to 10,000 to 20 in, in, uh, Hamburg. So it really was, um, uh, you know, I can't even believe I did it looking back at it. Uh, it was just something that, uh, was sort of fascinating. To me, yeah. I was just, I, uh, you know, and I got to meet Sinatra and, and, and shake his hand one night. And the joke was always that he said to me, eat something, you look bad, which was, a, you know, it's hilarious. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it almost sounds like he, he got that from Don Rickles. Something, yes, something that he it, would say. <laughs> exactly. You know, I think it was one of those things uh, uh, that they used to say to each other. So it was really that the whole experience was uh you know, to see the, the, all the craft, all those arrangements that Sinatra was singing were from, you know, the fifties and sixties. And, and here he is some 30 years later and almost 30 years later, in some cases more than that playing those same charts. I mean, uh, I've got you under my skin still works 50 years yeah. later. It's still a swinging a chart. You know, you, you get to realize that the quality of those, arrangements are just as important as what Sinatra's singing. And he had those really great people writing those things. And you realize that the money that was put into those was well spent. And so I always, uh, you know, I've had really good arrangers over the years from John Clayton to Tori Zito and Don Sebesky and Dick Lieb. And those charts, uh, that was money well spent because I've, I've, I've played them. Uh, I still, I still, uh, they choke me up just that the quality of them. And it, it was, uh, it was just amazing. And, and speaking of uh, great musicians, Mike Kern and uh, Isaiah J. Thompson are, are on this uh, new album of yours. Uh, can you tell me about meeting these two musicians and how that collaboration began? Yeah, uh, as a matter of fact, Mike was the first one. Uh, he was in, no, 2015. I think he joined the band. I got to ask Mike if he remembers because uh, 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 there was an opening in the bass chair and I I wrote John Mosca, who was in the Vanguard Orchestra for many years. Uh, and I said, I need a bass player. You know what I do. And who's the hot bass player out there who could play in my group, you know, know the style kind of thing. And he said, 
he named two guys, and the four, third guy was Mike Karn. And then I went to the tenor player, Harry Allen, and I said, uh, you know any good bass players out there? And he named two guys, and the third guy was Mike Karn. I said, so everybody, both of them mentioned Mike Karn and two other guys, and you know, the two other guys were different. So I said, Mike Karn must be pretty good, because they both mentioned him. And, he, and there he was. And they were right. He was fantastic and continues to be. And... Isaiah, I met, uh, I had met Isaiah when he was 16 on a gig that uh, I did with the, the Jazz House Kids. They were a group from, uh, run, that group is run by, uh, Christian McBride's wife, Melissa. I was really impressed with Isaiah, and I figured, well, I was like, well, someday I'm gonna get a kid like that in my band, but I gotta let him finish high school first. And then, uh, when the piano player Conrad had left our group, Conrad Peshkutsky, I wrote Christian McBride. I said, who are the hot young guys playing piano? And the first name was Isaiah J. Thompson. And I said, that's the guy. I'm sure that's him. And my daughter found him on Facebook for me. And uh, he's been playing with me ever since. He had a, you know, he his first gig was 2019. And his last gig was March 12th of 2020. And then we got back together about a year and a couple of months later. And we've been playing together ever since. He's a remarkably talented and uh, absolute gem of a person. Uh, as a guitarist and a vocalist, what is it that you like about playing in a trio? Oh, I think there's this group in particular. It's so uh, there's an energy to it that's really great. You have to, and every guy, every person in the group has uh, a job at every stage of what they're doing. So you know, it's not just about playing the solos. So when you're not playing a solo, you have to be uh, accompanying whoever is or providing some rhythm or doing something that's uh, that helps the group out. Uh, and that's what I love as a guitar player is that you get to play rhythm, you can play chords, uh, chord solos, straight, uh, you know, uh, single notes, and uh, the whole group has to, you know, work together. So it's a really, uh, it's, a, it's an important union. And it's the same thing that those three guys, the same three guys have to be able to get on a plane or wait in an airport or, uh, you know, after a sound check, sitting in a room for two hours, they have to all get along or uh, it's, it, it's, it's not even good for the music. So that's, it's an important blend that those three guys, including myself in there, obviously, we, we all have to get along in all mm. those ways. And, uh, and that's what's so beautiful about the trio setting is that uh, there's so much to do and it's so, uh, it's so energetic and enjoyable. Well, John, it's been fascinating speaking with you. Thank you very much for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure. And thanks for having me. And I hope everybody uh, finds stage and screen and uh, enjoys it.
you enjoyed my conversation with John Pizzarelli and I remind you that his latest album, Stage and Screen, is available now on Palmetto Records. And if you love jazz and vinyl, be sure to check out our Jazz A's Vinyl Club. Join the club and we will send you four premium limited edition color vinyl albums mailed directly to you. Just go to jazzays.com and click on Join Vinyl Club for more. And as music from stage and screen, the latest album by John Pizzarelli plays us out. I encourage you to keep an eye out for more Jazz Ace podcasts, our print magazine and other great content available to you on our regularly updated website, jazzaise.com. And if you like what you see, you can always subscribe for more. Till the next time, this is Matt Mikucci signing off. See you soon. (laughs) 